1: Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. China is known for being something of a product copycat, but when it comes to unlocking the full potential of the mobile internet, might it be the Silicon Valley companies who are falling short? This week, the Chinese ride-handling company Didi bought Uber's business in China. So why has Uber China gone into local hands?
2: This is a very hard market for anybody, but in particular, Uber failed because Didi is a better company.
1: More on that later in the show. But first, a common way to help us understand how the brain works is to imagine it as a complex computer-like system of neurons firing electric signals to each other. Such thinking has long guided scientists in their research. Now, a group from IBM's Research Center in Zurich has built an artificial neuron. So how do they do it, and what are the benefits? With me to explore the story is Tim Cross, our science correspondent. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, first, what is a neuron on a chip?
3: Like you said, a lot of people like to think of the brain as if it's a kind of you know, squishy biological version of a computer – and that's kind of a useful analogy as far as it goes but when you actually start looking into the details, brains turn out to work quite differently from computers. So the main bit of the brain as far as we can tell that does all the sort of heavy lifting is this thing called a neuron which is a spindly little cell that's connected to hundreds of other spindly little cells, hundreds of other neurons and they pass electrical electrical signals back and forth but they're very different from transistors. So one of the things we've talked about a lot in the past sort of recently is, is artificial intelligence and specifically this branch of it called deep learning which is sort of inspired by the way that brains are put together. And one of the sort of insights of deep learning is that if you can make artificial computers behave a bit more like brains, then they become much better at doing all these useful things like dealing with with sort of, you know, messy data from the real world that's not sort of clean and neatly packaged, which is how computers traditionally like it. But to do that, you have to persuade the transistors, which are the components that make up a standard computer, to sort of behave like something they're not, to behave like neurons.
1: So how do these new neural silicon chips behave differently than the traditional chips that we've been using in our deep learning networks that are based on the graphical processor? So what we've got here basically
3: is a small hardware device, you know, like a transistor that you could use to build a chip out of, but that behaves much more like a neuron does. So a transistor is is conceptually very simple. It's just a switch, right? So when the transistor is on, current flows, and when it's off, it doesn't. And neurons work kind of differently from that. Neurons are, I suppose, they're a bit like signal aggregators. So one neuron is connected to dozens or hundreds of others, and it receives little electrical impulses from all of them. And if it receives enough of those pulses in a short enough amount of time, that sort of activates the neuron. It fires and then it sends electrical pulses in turn to all the other neurons that it's connected to. But that sort of behaviour where you you have this sort of ramping up of potential until suddenly the neuron fires, that's something that transistors don't do natively. What we have here is, is a device that does that naturally, which means you can remove all that simulation overhead, and it works much more cheaply, uses much less power, it's much smaller, uh, and so on. So how would it be used? Well, this is the thing. So, so you might think that it's just something that biological brains have to live with, but it actually turns out it's, it's actually, you know, nature's found ways to make it actually useful. So a lot of these tasks that we want our artificial neurons to do, things like recognising faces and speech recognition and so on, mathematically you can basically boil them down into, into what's called an optimization problem. So you're trying to find the lowest point in a really complicated graph. The risk is you can get stuck in a low part of the graph that isn't actually the lowest. So it's quite low, but not the lowest. It's called the local minima. If you've got you know, neurons that, that sometimes fire rapidly, you can jot yourself back out of that and get closer to the real minima, the real thing that you're, you're trying to find. It works in the sensory system as well. It lets groups of neurons can process signals that actually act faster than the neurons themselves can react thanks to this, this sort of randomness. So it's really important to the point that these, when we try and simulate neurons on computers, we have to inject randomness artificially. But these ones that IBM have, uh, have invented, they just exhibit it naturally.
1: And so finally, what are the practical implications in terms of using this and applying it for deep learning and for artificial intelligence How will this improve things?
3: Basically, it lets you simulate the the way the brain works much more easily. So rather than going through all the faff of simulating a neuron in in software, you just have something that behaves like it in hardware. So you can do the same job, you know, more cheaply. It uses less power. It takes up less space on the chip. They've got one of these things working. They're testing it. The next stage is to try and hook them up into networks, like the way that, you know, neurons are, are in the brain. But ultimately, the hope is you can integrate this with the same manufacturing technology you use on regular chips. So you could build, say, people talk about the Internet of Things, having sensors all over the world for everything. You could you know, have a few of these neurons attached to the sensor and tune them such that they only fire when weird things are happening. So, hey, this patient's heart rhythm is, is doing something odd or the temperature in your factory in your furnace is way higher than it should be or something like that. Or you could put them on standard computer chips, like bigger ones of them, and have them as like... co-processor that does useful things like, you know, recognizes your voice when you're talking to a computer, which we can sort of already do, but this would do it much more cheaply. It would do it with less power. It would just make everything easier, basically.
1: Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Ken. If you have something to add about this week's show, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. And, of course, you can tweet us directly at Economist Radio, or you can email us at radio at dot com. If you like this show, we would also encourage you to review and rate us on the iTunes store. What you can do is go to the iTunes store, find where the Babbage podcasts are, then in that feed, rate it and review it and tell people what you think. Thank you very much. Next, we tend to think of Google, Apple, and Uber as pioneers of online services and technology trends. But technology businesses are inventive. One is WeChat, which handles a lot of financial transactions in China. The second is Didi. It's the equivalent to the ride-hailing company Uber, and it's doing very well. In fact, Didi this week just bought Uber China, which had been struggling to get a foothold in the country. With me to discuss these topics is our deputy editor, Tom Standage, and our China business and finance editor, Vijay Veraswaran, on the line from Shanghai. Vijay, let's start with you. Tell us about the deal. What's happening?
2: So this week, Uber China has decided to throw in the towel after losing a billion dollars last year in China trying to take on Didi, which is a ride-hailing giant backed by Alibaba and Tencent, two internet companies that are giants in their own right.
1: So why is it that Uber failed?
2: This is a very hard market for anybody but in particular uber failed because Didi is a better company in china it catered more to chinese needs whereas uber offers chauffeur cars uh, Didi offers bus service uh, minivans guys to turn up and drive you home if you had too much to drink at the bar uh, and numerous other services that uh, appeal to chinese consumers so it had dominant market share Uh, In addition, of course, it also had taxi hailing across the country. It was in many more cities than Uber, which was still growing its franchise.
1: So, Tom, most people see this in the framework of Western companies going into China and leaving in tears. Do you see it that way? Is that fair? Well,
4: yes, there is. On the surface, this is an example of that. The regulators had introduced rules last week, making ride sharing legal for the first time, but also uh, prescribing what Uber and Didi could do. And uh, so you could look at this and say, oh, you know, as usual, Western company has had the rules stacked against it and has been has been chased out. But as Vijay points out, Didi really did outcompete Uber on the ground. And really, all the regulators did was call time on a fight that Uber had lost. I mean, the regulators said that when ride sharing rules these rules kick in later in the year, Didi and Uber and anyone else who's competing in this market will not be able to price rides below cost and offer these incentives to drivers and other things that they've been doing. And that's essentially how Uber has been trying to take market share from Didi. And it won't be allowed to do that anymore. In fact, that's what Uber has been spending a billion dollars a year on. And Didi has also been spending a fortune on this. Uh, So that will come to an end. That's uh, that's great news for the investors in those companies. It's not so good if you're a rider because it means prices are going to go up and Didi's going to have this monopoly. And it's not so good if you're a Driver either because you're not going to be getting those incentive payments as these drivers p- play the two companies off against each other. But I think more broadly, the the question of you know whether Western companies can succeed. There are examples of Western companies that do well in China. Apple's the most famous example. China's its biggest market. Uber was let in and it lost. But you know the fact was it was let in. So um, I think when people assume that the Chinese market is always closed and the rules are always stacked against
1: foreigners, it's not quite as simple as that. Now, what does this story tell us about China? innovation and Chinese technology.
2: The picture that people have of Chinese companies is mere copycats, particularly internet companies. Uh, The old joke is uh, all Chinese internet companies are C2C, that is, copy to China. Look and see what works in America, copy to China. This was a real phenomenon. Uh, Fifteen years ago, ten years ago, you found pretty shoddy clones of every other imaginable American example, Groupon and so on. There were clones, and that was good enough to get by in China. That picture has changed dramatically in the last five years, and in particular, the rise of the mobile Internet, which I posit China is the world leader in, has led to a number of business models, incremental and and breakthrough innovations, that are creating world-beating companies coming out of China. And, of course, ride-hailing is a real-life example where so-called online to offline services, that is, real-world taxis, but that are accessed on your smartphone, Uh, This is one of these areas where China is innovating.
1: Vijay, this week you're writing about WeChat. Tell us how this fits into the framework.
2: Now, WeChat is a messaging app. Uh, If you just take a look at it superficially, it looks a bit like WhatsApp or some of the other ones that people are familiar with, Facebook Messenger or Kik. But in fact, this product, which is developed by China's Tencent, which is an Internet giant, has managed to become a, a complete ecosystem a mobile operating system on your smartphone. Chinese use it for everything from hailing Didi cars to uh, online payments to uh, really uh, entrepreneurial services. There are more than 10 million official accounts, but mostly it's something that more than one-third of the time that Chinese spend on their mobile phones, they spend it within the WeChat ecosystem. So it's really become an extraordinary mobile home for everyone.
1: Tom, why is it that Silicon Valley just didn't match the performance of WeChat in their products because they put a lot of money into their products.
4: Well, the really interesting thing is that actually Silicon Valley companies are trying to match WeChat. Without realising it, Western consumers are being influenced by the success of WeChat in China because all of the apps that we do use are trying their best to copy it. The most obvious example is Facebook Messenger. Facebook wants to turn Messenger into the WeChat of the West. It wants to add payments. It wants to add bots. It wants to add the ability to talk to companies, you know, over over this service in the way that you can on WeChat. Similarly, Snapchat has added features, the sort of media portal on the side, of its messaging app. It's a direct lift from, from WeChat. And then if you look at the sudden enthusiasm that Google, Microsoft and Facebook have for bots, once again, you know, that's uh, that's something that they're influenced by WeChat. So it's not for lack of trying, but the weird thing in the West is that the payment infrastructures are baked into the smartphone operating systems and they're separate from the messaging apps. So Facebook doesn't own a smartphone OS. It's tried, it's failed. Whereas Apple doesn't have a, an elaborate messaging app in the, the scale of Messenger, a social network work on the scale of Messenger. So essentially, we've got more of this sort of division between different companies. Uh, and that means we have more competition, and we have more choice, but we it means we don't have the convenience that comes from the integration. And it also means we don't have the monopoly that, um, that frankly, WeChat has in, in China, it's used by about 600 million people in China.
2: I would jump in, if I might, on the point about monopoly or market dominance. Unlike some parts of the Chinese economy, where the government plays a role to keep out foreigners or, or to stamp out private competition to some sort of favoured Data and enterprise, WeChat has flourished because of competition, not uh, because of protection. It has vigorous competitors in China, most notably Alibaba, perhaps the most formidable private sector company in China. They've tried aggressively to come up against WeChat, and they've failed. And WhatsApp is openly available in China; it's not blocked. So WeChat has risen uh, not because of protection. Uh, people use it; 600 million plus Chinese use it because it's such a great product, not because there's nothing else available.
1: Do you folks see a world in which Chinese internet companies come into the Western markets and try to steal market share there?
2: My view is that Chinese internet companies will have a difficult time overseas. Uh, it depends on which part of the market. If you look at um, Alibaba as an e-commerce company, they have actually made successful forays into emerging markets. Southeast Asia, for example, and in India, uh, they're doing online payments. They own India's largest online payment firm. They own an online bank, Korea's first online bank, and uh, in various other examples. So in those areas, I think we will see significant influence of uh, Chinese companies. When it comes to content and social media, I think those are different kinds of industries where it'll be quite difficult. Culture matters. The Chinese language is quite distinct, Chinese culture. And so I think WeChat itself has not succeeded in its efforts to go overseas, uh, in part because of its Chineseness, but also in part because the incumbents like Facebook, Messenger and others uh, have a network effect. People already belong to those other networks. Why on earth would you want to join a Chinese app if you live in Kansas?
1: Great. Thank you very much, Vijay. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Vijay's piece on Chinese innovation and Tim's article on artificial neurons, please pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or online. In London, this is The Economist.